Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a global biopharmaceutical company that is committed to bringing immuno-oncology to people living with earlier stages of cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cancer genetics and high-risk patients with Amanda Gonzak, the lead genetic counselor at Yale New Haven Health. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. Uh, I think genetics... um In cancer, I mean, I I have to say I hear about it with almost every new patient uh, of mine. You know, my patients mostly have leukemia or other related blood malignancies. Uh, They always want to know, is this something I'm going to pass on to my kids? It seems like every single one. That question and, you know... I can't think of anybody in my family who's had this. Like everybody, that's where they go to. Do you? I mean, of course, you see a slice of people who want to know that, right? But what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a very common question that people have, just like anything in a family history, whether it's heart d- disease or diabetes, they want to know, am I at risk for this? And is my family at risk for this? And the important thing to remember for those with a cancer diagnosis is only about 5 to 10% of cancers are hereditary or genetic, or that we have genetic testing to be able to understand the risk for them and their family members. So the vast majority of patients who are diagnosed with cancer will not fall into this category and their relatives will not have a high risk for cancer. But if you fall in that 5 to 10%, those are the people that we would like to be seeing and testing to help alert their relatives of an increased risk. Yeah, so, so how would somebody know that they were in that category? It's difficult. And I think what we're learning is that there's more people in that category than once we understood before, which right. is making it more complicated and complex. Uh, We used to rely so much on the family history. If there were many people with the same types of cancers or related types of cancers, like breast or ovarian cancer in the family, um, those were patterns that we would look for. So people know that like Aunt Tilly had breast cancer, Mm -hmm. and I heard something about great aunt so-and-so, and mom had cancer at an early age, right? Like Those would all be factors that would raise red flags to the majority of physicians who are seeing these patients or their patients themselves might be raising questions. I think what has become more difficult is that we're learning that not all the family histories look that drastic. And there can be more subtle family histories or, um, as an example, let's say the family history is on the dad's side of the family, but there's not a lot of women who would have been at risk for a female-related cancer. So you might not have a strong, quote-unquote, family history like we would be looking for, but it doesn't exclude the fact that it could still be hereditary. So those are some of the things that we would evaluate for during a genetic counseling session. Um, but might not be as obvious to the clinicians who are seeing these patients in the clinic regularly. Right. And a lot of the cancer uh, susceptibility genes or propensity genes, I'm mm-hmm. trying to think of what the lay word for that would be. <laughs> the genes that make you at, risk, at risk for cancer. Mm-hmm. I know I'm 
I hate when we use words like I, that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh, God, I'm coming up with the five-syllable words. I never let my guests get away with that. So uh, the, these genes that put you at risk for cancer, not all of them predict for a particular kind of cancer, right? I mean, so it, it, am I right that it may not be just looking for a pattern of breast cancer? It could be looking for just a lot of cancers? Yeah, uh, it can be dependent on the gene for sure. And certain genes have much higher risk than others. Um, but you can see genes associated with breast cancer, colon cancer, ovarian or uterine cancer, pancreatic cancer. We're learning more about the hematologic malignancies and genes related to those now. So really any cancer under the sun, you can sort of find a gene that's linked to it in some way. And, but a particular gene can also be linked to several, right? Correct. So Correct. if you're just looking for a family of just one cancer, that may not be Very the thing. It may, just be, it may just be... Yeah, you're typically seeing you know, two or of three different, different types kinds. of cancers yeah. that are and clustering think, together. Right, and I, I know for my patients, again, that's that's not what they're often looking for. They're looking for blood cancers in my yeah. case. You yeah, know. yeah. Interesting. You know, it's, it's interesting what you say about the blood cancers. Um, you know, one of my colleagues in Chicago, whom you may be familiar with, uh, Dr. Lucy Godley, has really made us a thing out of discovering familial um, leukemia-associated genes, and um, she came and gave us a talk recently, and it was something like if you have um, leukemia and you have one or two first-degree relatives with any cancer, then the chance of finding a gene was something like 20 or 25 percent. I mean, it was really surprisingly high. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that literature quite yeah. as well, I'll be honest, but when we're starting to see multiple people with leukemias in a family, um, that starts to you know reach that pattern concerning of something hereditary. Now, whether or not we can find an identifiable gene that's, that's linking all story. those together, that's different, but there certainly have been many genes in the last five to 10 years that we really have um, found in some of these hematologic families, particularly with the leukemias. Yeah. So uh, so how do people come to you? Do people self-refer? Their oncologists refer? Or? Yeah. The far majority of patients come to us from one of their physicians, whether that be a primary care, gynecologist, gastroenterologist, or from the cancer center from. So from their oncologist, or their surgeon might be referring them. Most of them end up that way, referred to our center. We do have some self-referrals, especially if family members have been seen and they're coming in for testing, they might just be cold calling us for an appointment. But the majority come from some health care provider that they're seeing. Mm -hmm. And do most of the people who are coming to see you have a diagnosis of cancer or some of them are worried about cancer? Yeah, I would say it's a good split. Um, there are very worried well who are coming in based on their family history of cancer. Um, and we're seeing a very far majority of people with cancer. I mean, I came into the clinic that way, as a matter of fact, <laughs> as yeah. worried well. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's a good thing. I mean, you know, I, I'd rather see someone and either be reassuring or say to them, you know, this is great that you came in. I'm glad we can take this opportunity to review the history and get you the care that's most appropriate. So, it, so how does it work? So I, I come in, um, you know, because in my case, I was concerned about whether there was a familial risk of uh, pancreas cancer mm -hmm. uh, due to my mother and her sister, uh, which I, in my understanding, two, uh, two relatives in that same generation mm -hmm. was yeah. enough to be concerned. Mm -hmm. And um, and in my case, I was seen by – it wasn't you, but but a genetic counselor, I think uh, – Primarily, is that is that the usual pattern? Yeah, the usual pattern is a, is a patient will come in, they'll meet with a genetic counselor. We typically meet with patients for about one hour. Mm -hmm. We ask pretty detailed questions about the family history. So we let patients know in advance, ask some of your relatives some of the questions before you come in. Things like, how old was grandma when she had breast cancer? How old was uncle, you know, Mike sure. when he had pancreatic cancer? So that 
that when we meet, we have as much detailed information as possible to make our assessment. I'm looking at the number of people in the family with cancer, the types of cancers, the ages when they were diagnosed, but I also might be looking at who does not have cancer. You know, how does that ratio play out within the family? Um, If I'm starting to see more people with cancer than without, then that's going to be something more striking for an inherited risk factor. Um, We'll go through what are genes, how do they cause cancer, what does genetic testing look like, how might we use these results to guide cancer screening and decision making in that regard. Um, And so, you know, within that hour, we're helping patients navigate and make an informed choice about whether genetic testing is indicated, whether they want to move forward with it, and what exact test do they want to choose moving forward, um, uh, you know, with the options they have. So are there genetic tests for every situation? No, (laughs) there are not. Um, And that can be difficult, I think, when there's conversations in a family that says, this looks pretty hereditary, but I don't know what gene it is yet. Come back or call us in five or 10 years. That isn't always easy to have that conversation with a patient. Um, But it happens. Uh, We've made advances and we've learned so much. And even, you know, in the past over 10 years that I've been doing this, the number of genes we look at has exponentially changed. Um, And so it will continue to do so. So I think one of the very important things I tell patients when they, you know, leave our office or give them results of genetic testing is this isn't over just because we did this test and we've gotten a result. You might want to continue to keep in contact uh, with us. Family histories change. There are new diagnoses that are made within a family that could change the assessment and the genes we might want to look at. We learn more about different genes that we might want to test for in the future. So um, while it feels like a snapshot in time when they meet with us, we want to continue to evaluate that over time to make sure that if anything has changed, that we've accounted for that and our recommendations are changed accordingly. Well, how do you do the testing? I mean, do you actually have to do biopsies of various tissues? Uh, no, we do not. That's probably one of the biggest questions we get walking in. Uh, the two things people ask me, is this going to hurt and how much is this going to cost me? Um, the the first one is it not going to hurt. Usually we do it through a blood sample. Um, it's a pretty small amount, like a tablespoon size of blood that we would take. And um, the testing can also be done through a saliva sample. So if someone really doesn't want to have their blood drawn, then we can use a, a saliva sample. They just spit into a tube for us. So that's easy. Now let's talk about the payment part. <laughs> that is definitely very complex and is a moving target. Uh, uh, the the testing companies out there, there are many different companies that offer genetic testing, way more than used to be. Um, and the cost has drastically come down. Um, so it really makes genetic testing a lot more affordable um, and doable for people where they might not have had that opportunity before. So some of our conversations are... Even if you don't meet your insurance criteria, you could have the option to pay out of pocket. Um, Costs are around $250 right now if patients decide to self-pay. Now, that's not nominal. That's still a lot of money for a lot of people. Um, but It's a lot it's, different than 5000 like it used which, to be. Exactly, right? exactly. So, you know, um, the insurance companies are definitely giving us more pushback. We have to prove a lot more um, the number of people in the family who have cancer. Why is this indicated? How is it going to change medical mm. care? Um, and those justifications take a lot more time than they used to. Uh, So we're kind of caught in the middle as genetic counselors to justify why this test is needed, how we will use that information um, to hopefully get that test paid for. What's then the consequence? Let's say um, you're screening somebody um, and um, 
you find a gene that puts somebody at risk for some kind of cancer or several kinds of cancer, mm-hmm. the patient is well. Mm-hmm. Now what? <laughs> um, that is probably a bulk of our patients who come through with inherited risk. They're a young individual who now is facing this lifelong, potentially um, action plan. We like to think of ourselves as the quarterback of their care through the Cancer Prevention Center. Um, we want to be able to help coordinate the appropriate cancer screenings for that individual individual moving forward. As an example, if someone had a condition like Lynch syndrome, which increases their risk for colon cancer, other gastrointestinal cancers, and for women gynecologic risks, we have a lot of people to coordinate with. We have to make sure they're connected with the gastroenterologist who will screen their colon and their uh, upper GI tract more regularly. For women, we have to connect them with their gynecologist and making sure that they're getting appropriate screening. Um, And it can be overwhelming for people. This is a lot of appointments. It's a lot of testing that they have to do. It can be very overwhelming in the beginning to coordinate all of that. And so we really hope that our program is there to um, help some of that, to take some of that burden off the patient, make it a little bit easier, set them up with those appointments, and get them in a good routine so they know what to do every year moving forward. But it's a lifelong commitment that these these individuals are having to make due to these risks. So that's what I was going to ask. <clears throat> it's, it's not like you get screened once or twice and you're done, right? No. If we use Lynch syndrome as our example again, um, these individuals are getting colonoscopies every single year. Oh, my gosh. From when they're 20 to 25 years old onwards. That's a lot of colonoscopies. That's a lot of colonoscopies. For a 20-year-old, 25-year-old, try to convince them to come in every year. It's hard. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Amanda Gonzak. We've been discussing cancer genetics in high-risk patients. Uh, so, Amanda, before the break, we were talking about um, getting your insurance to pay for your screening. And the other question that I had about insurance is the one that for a long time people had worried a lot about. So you get diagnosed with a gene that's you know, associated with something like your Lynch syndrome gene or the BRCA genes that you know, many women know about for breast cancer risk and others. And people worry about having higher premiums or being denied insurance. What's the story with that nowadays? Yeah, so I feel I still think it's a very big concern that patients have. Um, how will this genetic information be used against me? And there are laws, both federally and state-wide, uh, that are have been put into place to protect individuals. The federal law is called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA for short. Um, This law has protections for those individuals who are unaffected, 
who have been identified with genetic risk. And that does not just mean cancer. It can be any genetic disease. Um, but unfortunately, if someone has a cancer diagnosis, they are now affected and Gina no longer protects against that. Um, so insurance could use potentially the results of genetic testing to make decisions, but they're also using their cancer diagnosis to make decisions about premiums, which is probably more weighted than their genetic test results. But the Affordable Care Act prevents mm-hmm. them from being denied on either of those Correct. Bases, right? You can't Correct. be denied insurance anymore. Correct. Exactly. Right. Um, so I think it can get a little nuanced. This is certainly something we talk about with patients, um, but it's not a blanket statement. Everyone's, you know, protected and cleared and genetic testing could be used, um, but it's likely not used to, to make decisions at this point. And I also assume that if somebody's going to need to have annual colonoscopies or mammographies or whatever it may be, they're going to need to explain to their insurance company why they need so many colonoscopies. Exactly. It needs to be somewhere coded that they have an an increased risk for for some reason to get the colonoscopy every year. So that genetic diagnosis is our way to get that covered, but many patients are worried that having that in their record will will flag that to their insurance. So it's a double-edged sword, I think, that, that we get into. I mean, I think societally it's really interesting because these people always existed, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, in some ways we can potentially save the insurance companies and society money by doing appropriate screening and not dealing with advanced cancer, I I would think, as well as saving lives. That seems like a good thing. Yeah, and that's what I I try to tell my patients is, you know, when you move forward with risk-reducing surgery, uh, you have your ovaries removed and you essentially eliminate that risk, you're at less risk than the general population woman is, and you would think that insurance would, would see the benefit of that. And I think many of them do. They're covering these risk-reducing surgeries. They're covering these increased surveillance, things that are considered standard of care with a genetic diagnosis. So it is getting recognized from the insurance company. These are important things that we need to do. And in the end, yes, it probably saves them money um, by uh, delaying or you know totally avoiding a cancer diagnosis in the first place, or at least an advanced one. Do you think that the uh, uh Coming out of certain public figures, I think it was Angelina Jolie, Jolie. was it, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, with her, uh, I think it was one of the BRCA genes and the, and the dramatic prophylactic surgery she had. Has that increased the conversation? Has that been kind of once and done and nobody remembers that anymore? Yeah. In our in our world of genetics, we like to call that the Angelina Jolie effect. Um, we definitely saw an increase of referrals, an increase of calls, an increase of interest from individuals coming in asking, you know, my family looks or sounds a lot like Angelina Jolie's. Is this something that I should be worried about? Um, when I talk about the BRCA genes, if I mention Angelina Jolie, it, like, it's a light bulb. It's more right. than even I can oh, do myself. Had, right? Yeah. And so uh, it helps. I think it brings light to something that a lot of people weren't comfortable thinking about or talking about with their family, and it brings it to the masses, and I think it has benefits. So while it made us really busy in the clinic, it is, in the end, I think, a really good thing that um, people are starting to question their family history more than they might have otherwise. It's interesting. I I know that when Katie Couric had the on-screen colonoscopy, that was very good for raising colon cancer awareness. And Robin Roberts, who had a stem cell transplant for myelodysplastic syndrome, I, I think, um, you know, I don't wish illness on any celebrities, but I, I really do respect those celebrities who use their experience as an opportunity to give back, uh, given what they've gotten from the public to the public. I, think I that's completely cool. agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that's interesting. So, um, 
What percent of people who come to see you actually turn out to have something, uh, have a bad gene? Yeah, I mean, I think we're a little biased because the people who come to us probably have a pretty strong family history. But, you know, I would say about a quarter of our patients who move forward with genetic testing might end up to have something hereditary in some way, whether that's identifiable or not. Um, But once again, if we look across the population, any cancer, about 5 to 10 percent of it will be hereditary. So, you know, we're sort of narrowing in on those uh, individuals who probably have more risk than than others. Kind of puts you in an emotionally uh, tenuous position where it's more interesting for your job if somebody turns out to have something, but you don't really want anybody to have anything. That's my guess. <laughs> Otherwise, your job is kind of boring, right? <laughs> on target. Yeah, on target. Uh, you know, the, the conversations have definitely become more interesting as there's been more genes discovered and things are changing. So I'm having these families where we didn't have, you know, genetic testing years ago that found anything. Now we have that gene and it totally flips the family upside down thinking they didn't have anything and now we are able to answer those questions. So it's definitely very interesting. Um, But yeah, you don't wish it upon anyone uh, when they walk through the doors. But at the same time, when you do identify it, it gives an answer. And I think it's an answer that some families have been searching for for a long time. Mm. Why did this happen to us? And it can almost be a sense of relief. It's nothing we did. It's nothing we ate. Um, You know, no bad decisions come, you know, karma coming back to us. It's, It's just something we were born with and we have to deal with. But now we know and we can. Yeah, no, I remember a patient that I had, I think it's back from my Johns Hopkins days, which was at least six years ago, and it was a family with a very impressively peculiar history of many patients with the same weird leukemia. It had to be something. And um, and I sent it to, again to my colleague in Chicago that I mentioned, and uh, they were able to identify it. And now, you know, now I happen to be mentioned on a paper uh, that grew out of that. But, um, you know, I think it was very, uh, very empowering to the patient to know that there was somebody looking for what they, the family knew was a problem. So what I was going to ask you about that was, are you working with any research groups? Do you refer people to research groups? If if the story is so, it's got to be something and you don't find something, what do you do or, or where do you refer people? Wonderful. So we actually have our own research repository within uh, Yale. So we offer all of our patients the opportunity to enroll to our research repository. And what we would do is collect a blood sample or a DNA sample through saliva, um, have them consent, obviously, to use that sample. Sure. And, you know, over time, re- that gives researchers the opportunity to say, of all our patients with leukemia or all our patients with colon cancer under 50, let's take those samples and go beyond the genes that we've already looked at and know about, but what else could it be? Uh, So we use samples in that way. Um, We also can send samples or coordinate with other institutions if there is a research um, group somewhere else that's looking at these particular types of families, ask them if they'd be interested in enrolling as well. So we sort of help navigate both of that, both in-house as well as external. And in such cases, do you actually get samples on family members, or if there's nothing to measure, you don't do that at that time? It sort of depends. Um, You know, if we have a family where there's a lot of affected individuals and we haven't found the inherited risk, collecting samples from those affected individuals allow research just to have, you know, more power in numbers uh, to make the linkage within the family. So in a family like that would be someone that we really would try to collect as many samples as we could. Um, If we have 
haven't identified anything and there's not really a strong family history, that's probably not one that we would extend offering sure. um, samples to be collected. So it's sort of a case-by-case basis. And, you know, we present our families to our medical directors weekly and um, anytime that there might be a good research family, the genetic counselor might go back and, and coordinate that with the family. Got it. So I'm just kind of interested in your story. You say you've been at this about 10 years. Did you go into genetic counseling with a particular interest in cancer or are you interested in genetics? And how does one come to this career? It's not something they, you know, talk to you. Maybe they talk to you about it in freshman biology class. I don't know. But I mean, it's not on your list of like you want to be a teacher, doctor, fire person, you know? Yeah, definitely not. I mean, I, <laughs> I want to be a genetic counselor, mom. <laughs> Most people don't even know what, exactly, what it is when right? you mention it. Um, you know, I in particular was really interested in genetics. I actually took a genetics class in high school. So for me, I sort of always liked biology and genetics. And it just so happens that my mom has a BRCA1 mutation. So mm. for me, it's personal. Um, I, I saw her diagnosed with breast cancer at a young age. I saw her go through the process of meeting with a genetic counselor and learning of this risk. And the value that I saw that the genetic counselor brought to her was something that really highlighted to me, this is a very interesting field and something I think could work well for me. Um, It's a really great combination between really having to keep up to date all the time with genetics and science and it's ever changing, which is very exciting. You know, no two days are the same. Um, But it also allows me to meet with patients one-on-one for a long period of time. I mean, who has an hour that they get to spend in a clinic with patients. It's right. a very rare field that you get to spend that much time and connect with patients. And so for me, it kind of had the, the dual benefit of both. And um, I can take my own personal experience and um, put that into my work. And I think it, it brings wow. it to a different level than, than maybe many other genetic counselors might have the opportunity to do. And yeah, So you were really always going for this cancer, cancer thing. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and I assume you have to do post- baccalaureate training. Yeah, it's a two years master's program. Um, the field has almost doubled in size since I've started. So it's definitely a, a field that's growing and expanding. The need for our services is greater than the number of genetic counselors we have. Um, there are various specialties from prenatal, uh, uh, pediatric, cancer, but it's ex- uh, expanding into um, neurology, cardiology, um, even psychology, you know, looking at some of these more psych um, uh, disorders and would there be a connection there? So it really is expanding across the the field of medicine. Hmm. And when you do your master's training, is there a way to, to subspecialize then and enhance your knowledge about cancer or psych or whatever? Yeah. It might be? So the programs are designed in such a way that we have to rotate through the core specialties. So prenatal, pediatric, and cancer are considered core. So we have to rotate through those clinics. But there are opportunities that if you really liked cancer, you might choose a second rotation in cancer again to get that added specialty. So you can sort of specialize, I guess I would say, if you if you could arrange it that way, um, but you really are getting exposed to everything. We take a board exam when we graduate, and it covers everything, so we have to make sure we have that good foundation first. Well, that's, that's a lot to learn. <laughs> it and sure I, is. I certainly had to even keep up with it in my field. So as, uh, in terms of keeping up with it, um, you know, I know that the scientific laboratory-based platforms on which, by which these things are tested change all the time, and particularly when it's not a, one certain gene you're looking for. And um, so do people have to get retested if you don't find anything, or can you, 
keep their sample and rerun it? What, how does that work? Yeah, it can depend on where they had their initial testing. For most commercial companies, if they had testing you know, greater than just a couple months ago, then a new sample is required to have more genes tested. Here at Yale, we have the opportunity to go through the, the Yale Diagnostic Laboratory, and um, they will keep a sample. So we might have the opportunity, if it's been within a couple years, to rerun that sample. Um, so it can depend. Uh, we do offer more testing to patients if it's been long enough. If there's been new genes and they weren't tested before, they would give, be given the opportunity to come back in, review those genes and what benefit it could have to them and offer testing if necessary. So we certainly are seeing that now uh, for women and men who've had prior BRCA testing only and no other breast cancer genes tested, right. saying, why don't you come back in? There's more that we could do now. Mm-hmm. So do you actually call do you call people back or do they do you set them up for follow-ups or how does that work? Yeah, so we leave a little bit of the onus on the patient to contact us. Yeah, we have so many patients who come so, through yeah. that we it would be a never-ending list of people that we'd be calling. We probably spend more time doing that than actually seeing them. So, we tell patients all the time, if it's been a couple years and you're still worried or have questions, call us. We review the results that, you know, that had uh, prior previously been taken place. We look at that and say, you know, more testing's warranted. Why don't you come back in? Gotcha. And so just in the, the last couple minutes we have, you know, I, I suspect that a lot of people are using some of the genealogy DNA things to do a kind of a cheap screen. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there we caution patients using, you know, kind of what we would call yeah, recreational genetics. So there are limitations around these tests. They have false positives. They have false negatives. They can have psychological implications, um, you know. Things like learning of what you think is risk that turns out not to be real risk or that there's non-paternity. There can be limitations to these testing and real impact. So from our National Society of Genetic Counselors, our position statement has sort of been, you know, do it for fun, but with caution and know its risks and its limitations. Use a genetic uh, provider who can interpret these results and help you along the way, but it might not be the test that we would use clinically to guide medical management. Amanda Gonzak is the lead genetic counselor at Yale New Haven Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.